You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. And the story of Job is not just a story about misfortune, but about disgrace and um, loss of honor and status. And his friends come and even pound on him even more to try to say, you must have done something wrong. And yet it's a story about shame and honor as well, where Job did nothing wrong. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? So sometimes shame is when you do something and you feel ashamed of it. And other times it's when something is done to you and you can feel shame too. So we're talking about that kind of shame today, I think, from our text. Uh, Shame is not a topic you probably have heard too much in a church, Um, in the West at least, in the last hundred years. Um, But boy, shame is all over the place. It really is. And um, it's in the Bible from, uh, like we saw last week from Genesis 3 on. So last week we talked about it there. But the last decade or so in the United States, shame has become a topic mainly through the work of someone named Brene Brown, which I used and quoted her last week just a bit. Her TED Talk on shame and vulnerability has been watched over 40 million times. How many of you have watched it, by the way? It's good. It really is good. And she is from a Christian perspective. Now, in the the talk, she doesn't really talk about her faith there, but she is a Christian and a member of a church. And I think she's learned about that over time. Um, Now, what's fascinating about all this is in 2015, so not quite as old as 1997. I didn't realize 1997 was like ancient of days now. (laughs) I'm sorry, James. I am just so old that 1997 seems current yet. Do you know what I mean? It is current. You were two. You were not even thought about. Yeah. I won't say how old I was. So um, I had already been a pastor for 10 years at that point in time. Wow. Okay, so let's get back. So in 2015, Pam Stuckey wrote an op-ed piece in the Huffington Post, and she talked about the fact that she was amazed at, uh, well, she was talking about Brene Brown and what revolution it is that she made a change here. She uses a metaphor. She found an article in the Business Insider that she was amazed at, the title of which was, No One Could See the Color Blue Until Modern Times. And she goes like, what? So she writes, no one could see blue? How could that be? The article states ancient languages didn't have a word for blue. Not Greek, not Chinese, not Japanese, not Hebrew. And without a word for the color, there is evidence that they may not have seen it at all. And then the article poses a question. Do you really see something if you don't have a word for it? So then Pam Stuckey goes on in this article, and she uses that metaphor of they didn't see blue because they didn't have a word for it to how we don't see shame because we haven't used that word much at all. She writes, when I read Brene Brown's books, watch her videos, and witness how the people around me react to Brene, has to say, in some ways, it feels like Brene has done the equivalent of introducing our modern society to the color blue. 
Her research and work have given us a new vocabulary, a way to talk with each other about the ideas and feelings and fears we've all had, but haven't quite known how to articulate. It's like we've all had a sense of the concepts Brene studies, specifically shame, vulnerability, and courage, but never before have we had the words to fully express what we've been feeling or to share with each other our experiences. Now, like I said, in the West, maybe we don't know what shame is. But it's, uh, our culture is a minority culture in a lot of ways, and most of the world and much of the Bible was written in an honor and shame culture, and where group dynamics were more important than the individual. Okay? And so I think Brene's done us a great service. I also believe she's just rediscovering what's been there all along. But like not having a word for it, we haven't seen it. And what is the it? You know, we're going to redefine this again. Just So Ed Welch writes in his book, Shame Interrupted, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. So um, notice in that definition, sometimes it's something you do and you feel ashamed of. But sometimes it's something done to you. And... Sometimes it's something you're associated, people label you with, and it sticks. So today, we're actually painting a picture of shame from the prophet Zechariah, probably a book you have hardly read. He's very, um, he's almost, a, he is apocalyptic, which is, he has these symbolic dreams and visions throughout his book that are sometimes hard to interpret. This one is an easier one. Zechariah chapter 3, and in it we find this priest named Joshua, not the same Joshua from the book called Joshua. This is about 800, I think, ish years later after the people of Israel come back to Jerusalem from Babylon. They've been humiliated and shamed for 70 years, okay? And now they come back to Jerusalem, and here... They come to a place that is in shambles. The temple is incomplete, and the people are just demoralized. And you have Joshua, the high priest. You don't have a king. There's no King David, no David Davidic person. And there's a lot of questions as to how is this supposed to work, because there was always supposed to be a king from the line of David on the throne. So that's how Zechariah, what he is speaking to in our text today. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to him, to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them be a, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. 
Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. There are a few things in this last section that are definitely apocalyptic or symbolic language, and we'll get to those in a little bit, because you might go like, what am I supposed to make of that? But from this text, we're just going to explore two points today. Two. Amazing. Half the sermon length, probably. How shame and accusation work together, and then how accusations are silenced. Okay. How shame and accusations work together. So in the vision that Zechariah has of Joshua in the heavenly courts, the throne room of God, um, he sees Joshua there. And in the first sentence, we get three characters that are going to become important throughout, right? So we have, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, second character, and Satan standing there uh, at his right hand to accuse him. I think there's a general misconception that the number one thing the devil or um, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the serpent or the, the, the person, the personalized evil, uh, this angelic being we believe, that the number one uh, tactic the devil uses is to tempt you, to get you to do, entice you to do stuff. And yeah, he does that some. But you could argue in the Bible throughout the number one goal of this character, Satan here is named, is to accuse you, to shame you, to defame you, to disgrace you, to get you to doubt your status before God. You know, the name Satan actually means the accuser. That's his job. And he does a pretty good job of it. Here, Joshua, the high priest, after the exile, he's standing in this court, right? And he's being accused. We don't know of what. It doesn't say in the text, right? And that's probably fine. We don't need to know all the details. And after the exile, there are a lot of things that he could be doubting. He could be doubting his status because he's just a high, pri just a high priest, but the, he is not the king, and yet there is no king. So what role is he supposed to play in society, and how does that work? Is it legit? Is he really authentic? Then you've got the second temple that's being rebuilt, and it's kind of Wah, wah, nothing like Solomon's temple. And then you've got the people of God themselves. They're demoralized. They're not in charge of their land. Persia is in charge. They are never in charge of their property, their land, their future destiny from the Babylonian captivity on to the time of the New Testament when Jesus arrives. Never again. And they never have a king until Jesus arrives. So Israel's experienced 70 years of disgrace, and that's the question today. Now what? And Joshua describes this, uh, is described in this vision also in filthy garments, right? Dirty, unclean, 
keeping him, in a sense, according to Levitical law and other places, from ever entering into the sanctuary or presence of God. That's what shame often does. It makes you feel like, I've got to have something else to cover me, to enter, to be with God, just like Adam and Eve felt that in Genesis 3. Now, that, that kind of reminds me of a couple of uh, dreams I've had, and I, I wonder if you've had these too. I think a lot of people do. So the one dream I've had countless times, I don't know, maybe 10 or so times that I can recall, is I'm, I'm, in the, I'm back home in my hometown where I grew up, okay, which is always, it was not, it was an honor-shame culture place, actually. It was like, you got to fit in there. So, and I'm at my church which was, had 4,000 members. It looks like a cathedral. And in the basement, I'm in the basement in this dream. And I'm not fully dressed, OK? Have you ever had those dreams where you're not fully dressed? And I've been asked to preach at this church, and I've got to get upstairs, and I can't seem to get there because I can't find the robe. They wear robes in this church. I can't find the robe to cover up to go upstairs. And the music, is, there's, and it's the sermon hymn, the, the hymn before the sermon. And I'm downstairs, half-dressed, trying to figure out what to do. Do I just walk up the way I am? What do I do? And then I wake up. Do you have that dream? I mean, maybe not preaching or anything, but a dream where you've been half-dressed or even less-dressed. And you're walking into a party or a group, and you, ugh, you know, that's a shame dream. <laughs> okay? That's a, I feel like an imposter dream. Do you ever have imposter syndrome? No? You don't know what that is? Yeah, most professors have imposter syndrome at some time. You stand in front of a class and go like, what am I doing here? <clears throat> I shouldn't be here. I think that's what Josh was feeling. Now, the other dream I have <laughs> is sort of related. Um, somehow, somehow in high school, my transcript, I'm missing one credit to graduate. <laughs> Do you ever have this dream? And so I, so my bachelor's, my master's, my doctorate are all a sham. And I have to go back to high school in order to, and so at my age, I go back into this little high school, and I'm talking, and I'm seeing 15 to 18-year-olds, and I've got a locker again. And I have to get to class, and I can't figure out where the classroom is, because I've got to take this class in order to pass, in order to be legit. How many of you have had a dream where you go back to high school like that? Nobody? OK. How about college that you've never really graduated? OK. So OK. That's another one of those dreams where you don't feel like you've got the right standing, that you're an imposter, something's missing, something's not quite right. That's also where we face shame. So we have this. And then on top of this feeling that I think Joshua had as the high priest, not quite the king, not quite this, not quite that, and a people that's not quite together, not quite in charge, all these feelings of inadequacies and vulnerabilities, then comes in the accuser. <laughs> that's all it takes. Somebody to accuse. And you just feel almost like prickly because you know what could be said. 
there are some particular situations, I think, that the Satan, the accuser, exploits in our lives. You know, when trouble comes into your life, I think Joshua was facing a very difficult time. Things were not great. Everything was kind of in flux. And you're wondering if Israel will even survive. That's a lot of trouble. But you might have where you've just lost a job or you've fallen really sick. And I think at that point in time, the accuser comes into your life and says, God is punishing you. I think I've got these as slides, by the way, Wyatt. So God is punishing you, and you deserve it. And you go, yeah, you're probably right. Or another time, it's amazing. Um, you can get uh, the accusation when you try to speak and represent Jesus Christ to somebody. And you're ready to share with them about Jesus, but then you think about your own life. And you can hear a voice saying, if they only knew what you were really like, you have no right to share Jesus with anybody. And you go like, yeah, you're probably right. And you stop. Because, I mean... Honestly, who am I? I'm nothing. Or how about this when you're praying? Have you ever had it when you're praying a voice says in the back, why should God be listening to you anyway? Don't, you don't deserve an answer. You're not worthy. You deserve his neglect. Yeah, I mean, there's no real good reason he should answer me. When we start agreeing with these accusations. Or how about... <clears throat> When you uh, face uh, uh, what you would call a habitual or, I did it again, Lord, I did it again. And, you th and then you get the voice saying to you, you're, you think you're a Christian, really? You're hopeless. You're a loser. A real Christian would never have a problem with that. Yeah, I'm a loser. I'm hopeless. There's no chance. And then it can even happen, by the way, when things are going really well and all of a sudden you get an opportunity you just didn't even think about, and all of a sudden everything is falling together and you're scared because I've never had all this good stuff happen. And you hear a voice and, uh, accuse and say, you know, you don't deserve this. You're just a fake anyways at all this. You're an imposter in all of this. And by the way, God is just giving it to you now to rip it out of your hands in a little bit just to teach you a lesson. And you go like, yeah, I know. It's probably going to turn out bad. I'm going to fail again. Now, maybe like the other two dreams I just shared, you know, of not being fully clothed and trying to preach, or uh, not having that one credit somehow. And maybe you don't relate to these. I have a feeling you do. Notice how Joshua doesn't try to talk back in this text. He doesn't say anything. What's fascinating is a lot of people would say, well, John, you're just talking about low self-esteem. And this per whoever's talking to themselves like this, this self-talk, that negative stuff's just got to stop. They just got to turn it to positive talk and build themselves up. Joshua didn't try to do that in this text. And by the way, I don't think you're fooled by your own trying to talk yourself into good thoughts about yourself. It doesn't work real well. Um, it's not enough. It's really not going to be enough. We don't have the power to get rid of these accusations. This text does not tell you you can just kind of think positively, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, 
and I'm worth it. It's just not going to work. There's always a doubt. You need a word and a voice from outside. And that's how the accusations are actually silenced in this text. In this story, what's amazing, I don't know if you caught it right away. I love it. Zechariah's throne room scene, Joshua's standing there. Satan is at the right hand of this guy, which is the hand of power, in a sense, of Joshua. And God doesn't even let him get a word out. Did you see that? He doesn't say a thing. He can't say a thing. Immediately, as Carol and Eric Myers in their commentary says, Yahweh immediately proclaims by his sharp dismissal of the accuser that whatever charges may have been brought concerning Joshua cannot be entered into the record. The accuser is not allowed to speak. In fact, this is what Zechariah 3, 2 says, immediately upon having these three characters in front, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? God calls Joshua a brand like a stick pulled out of the fire, singed but not fully burned. In other words, I've rescued him. Yes, he's dirty, filthy from the fire, <laughs> the smoke, the soot, but I'm pulling him out of that. He's mine. He might be dirty, but he's mine, so Satan, shut up. You have nothing to say over him. You haven't a word to speak here. I don't know if you've, I, I grew up as well. Here's another weird, this is not a dream. It's just kind of what I always thought judgment day was going to be. You hear that term, judgment day? Do you ever go like, oh, judgment day? You know, for the Christian, it's like, oh, I'm going to stand and be judged. The word judge in the Bible, the book of Judges, you know what they are? Rescuers. Just change that word instead of a guy or gal with a wig on and a gavel. That's not the scene. Think of judges in the Bible and think rescue day. That's what it's going to be for you. But I thought, you know, it's going to have this big, you know, jumbotron in the sky, right? God is going to have this jumbotron in the sky, and each one of us, one by one, our lives will flash on the screen. Somehow it's an, I don't know how long this would take. I was a child when I was thinking this. You know, you get seven billion people to go through, you know, and the entire crowd is there watching the jumbotron. And you're standing up front, and then the whole life of your life is put in front, and every, everything is exposed. And at the end of it, then finally God says, oh, but not guilty, you're welcomed in. That is not a scene in the Bible. You won't find it anywhere. God will not even say a word negative to you at all. The Satan will not be able to say a word to accuse you of anything on that day. There is no accusation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only thing you're going to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. And if you're like me, you're going like, what did I do? Doesn't matter. That's what it is. That's God's judgment on you. You can't silence the accusations, but God does. God speaks, and the accusations are done. 
And underlying this, that dirtiness of Joshua, you know, what he could be accused of as not being pure enough to enter God's presence, God himself comes to remove those filthy garments and give him his glory. His word is that he is now clean, he is royal, he has access to the presence of God, he is his people. So when you hear accusations throughout your life, you better ask, where are they coming from? And stop agreeing with them. Okay, just stop agreeing with them. And instead, it's not your job to argue with the devil on these things. It was funny, I think it was Martin Luther who said, if you can't use scripture against uh, Satan, then just fart in his face. I mean, he just said, try to make fun of him in some way. He hates being made fun of, by the way. But let, let Jesus, just say, you take that up with Jesus. Those accusations don't belong here. You take them to him. Let him deal with them, because he has. This section, the angel of the Lord speaks, which um, I think, Jaden, you're going to be doing a, your Hebrew Bible paper on the angel of the Lord. Here it is, again, another passage. The angel of the Lord is this um, shelf space, you might say, or this character in, this, in the Hebrew Bible that says God is accessible, tangible right here. And yet there's more, but this is God as well, a messenger of God so that you have access to God. It's a weird thing. It's a theophany is the word, theophanos, God appearing in a way. And so the, this is, um, we believe, um, this is uh, before he's incarnated. This is the son of God coming as our aid. And the angel of the Lord here in Zechariah 3 says, Thus says the Lord, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you will shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. In other words, right there he's saying, Look, I know that you're not the king. I know that you wonder about your status. Follow me. I will give you the status and honor that you need in this situation. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. That word branch, by the way, is used in Isaiah many times for the righteous king that will come out of the stump of Jesse, out of the shoot, out of the dead dynasty of David. Jesse was his father. He's going to be the one that... In other words, this is the Messiah. Don't worry. The legitimate king's coming. But in between now and then, I've given you the status to rule. You are taking over that day. But behold, on the stone that I have set before him, on a single stone with seven eyes, that's an understanding of God's wisdom. I know this is apocalyptic, but you'll find this in the book of Revelation as well. He has all wisdom. He is rock solid. He's the one, it says, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Hmm. Do you think you know where that goes? This was written 500-ish years before Jesus shows up. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite your neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. In other words, Eden. A little taste of the Garden of Eden is going to break out because of what's going to happen. Everybody, the community, 
Here's the interesting thing. I don't know if you realize this. In the Gospels, there are 48 stories, accounts. 48 in the four Gospels. That's a lot of accounts of shame and honor. Of stories of uncleanness. 28 of them are primary uncleanness like leprosy or blood defilement. 34 of them are of men, 15 of women, ones of both at the same time. 28 times in these stories, Jesus either touches or is touched by someone who's unclean, which, <laughs> according to the law, when you are touched by someone unclean, what happens to you? You're unclean. But it reverses. When Jesus touches or is touched by someone who's unclean, his purity and holy is transferred to them. He does what nobody else can do. And what does he get for this? For example, in the story of Zacchaeus, I don't know if you realize it's a shame-honor story. He's stuck. He's being taunted in the tree. Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house. And guess what happens to that shame? All of a sudden, he's the one being accused of being dishonorable. Jesus is. In the story where he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees say, this is dishonorable. This is disgraceful. This is such a disgrace. He's eating... All of the dishonor and shame that they felt is now placed on him. That's what happens in these stories. When he touches a leper, all of that disease and the dishonor with it comes to Jesus. And what does he get for it? He is accused in the scriptures of defilement. He's accused of being a disgrace to the faith of Israel. He is accused of being in league with Satan himself, Beelzebub. And he is sentenced to death for sorcery, according to the Talmud. Yep. And what Jesus does is on that day, on that cross, he takes all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our sin, Every accusation that has ever been made against you, he takes it and absorbs it into himself so that there is nothing but glory and honor for you. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his glory. You're not just okay. You are marvelous in his eyes. You're a beauty to behold. Ultimately, even the book of Revelation, in Revelation 12, I think, uh, frames this well for us all, where it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumph over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You triumph over the accuser through the blood of Jesus Christ and the testimony you give about him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for our time together this morning for uh, this word from Zechariah, <laughs> amazingly 500 years before Jesus, and yet shows us how the accusations ultimately are taken care of. Lord, when that voice comes, when we agree with it, Lord, and uh, feel the shame that is not ours anymore, Lord, Remind us of who we are because of you, Lord Jesus. Remind us of the honor you've bestowed on us. Um, and like Joshua, cleanse us, Lord, so that we have full access to you. Lord, we know that work 
needs to be done in our lives and in the lives of so many around us. There are so many people who are just even afraid of walking into a church because they feel like they might be feeling some of that shame. I pray that you would help us to give the gospel of good news about how you, have, you are honored to be their brother, Lord Jesus. You are honored to go to the cross for them and take on their shame. You rejoice, and that is a joy to you to cover them with your glory. Help us, Lord, to preach and proclaim and live that gospel out in many lives. Lord, today we see so many conflicts in this world, many of them honor and shame-based, actually, Lord. We pray, Lord, for Israel right now and the conflict they are in. Lord, we pray for your protection and your peace that so many citizens and civilians that are caught in the middle of this mess, Lord, we pray you work it to your glory. We pray for your protection over Israel. We pray for many who are facing just uh, intractable conflict, Lord, that somehow you can bring reconciliation. We lift up to you Ukraine. We lift up to you Southern Sudan, Lord. There's just too many conflicts all over the globe. Even name, we pray, Lord, somehow your peace breaks out. We need you more than ever. In our society as well, the tribalism and the divisions, all the issues that we are seeing. And, and then on top of, Lord, the fear-mongering that is done to scare us even more. Lord God, we know how this story turns out. The blood of the Lamb. Lord Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, we are victorious, Lord. You're going to give us not just that we know now the honor and status, but that you are going to give us that honor and status forever, and we are amazed, Lord, that you would take us, these dirt creatures made out of the dust of the ground, and give us such honor and glory. Who are we, Lord? And yet that is who you've made us to be and who you want us to be. And therefore, we're going to follow you and trust you. And when the accusations come, Lord, we're just going to turn them over to you. We don't even need to say a word because they're not true anymore. There's no truth in them. The truth is in you, Jesus. Bless us now, Lord, as we uh, offer ourselves to you. Prepare us, Lord, to receive um, your body and blood. The, you honor us, Lord, to give us yourself in such a special way. And we pray that we would receive you. We're worthy because you call us, not because of ourselves. We pray that you would also, Lord, use our tithes and offerings for your kingdom's purposes. You know the needs in this community, Lord, that Thrive is trying to reach you know within our own midst, Lord, the needs of many in our church, Lord, that we want to lift up and care about. You know, um, and you've bestowed on us so many good things, Lord, that we can just only offer thanks to you and give back a little of what you've given to us. But bless these tithes, Lord, this day. All this we lift up to you, Lord Jesus, because you are the one to be praised. In your name, amen.